The Granzadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello and welcome. My name is Rick Gibson. I'm the Associate Vice President for Public Affairs here at Pepperdine University. And I'm joined today by Dr. Linda Livingstone, who is the Dean of the Grazadillo School of Business and Management. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Rick. It's good to be here. So the series keeps rolling along. A lot of exciting speakers. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, Mr. Simpson. Well, Mr. Simpson is very interesting. He is the professional manager of a family-owned business that has been around for six generations since the late 1800s. And you will hear all about that experience, as well as a little bit more about how they built the brand that is so well-known, certainly influenced by President Reagan's love of Jelly Bellies. That's right. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a a terrific interview, and so I'd like to invite our guests just to sit back and relax and enjoy this interview with Robert Simpson, President and Chief Operating Officer of Jelly Belly Candy Company. Well, welcome to our podcast of our Dean's Executive Leadership Series speaker, uh, Robert Simpson. He is the President and Chief Operating Officer of Jelly Belly Candy Company, which is a family-owned and operated company in its sixth generation of candy makers, and it's headquartered in Fairfield, California. So we're actually doing this podcast in the Dells from uh, Santa Clara in Northern California, where we have our EMBA program. And prior to being with Jelly Belly, uh, Mr. Simpson was with Rayleigh's, a supermarket chain, and he had a 30-year career there, uh, native of Sacramento, California. Mm-hmm. So welcome. We appreciate you being with us Thank today. You. Well, uh, let's start just a little bit about your background and what got you to Jelly Belly to begin with. After a 30-year career, uh, that's a big transition to make. So tell us about that transition and, and how you chose to do that at that point in your life. Well, uh, primarily I was the beneficiary of good timing. I met the CEO of uh, and owner of uh, Jelly Belly, and I, I played with him in a golf tournament, and we developed a friendship. and And uh, later on, he uh, uh, talked to me about an opportunity to come on board with Jelly Belly. So uh, my timing was perfect. Well, it also shows the value of uh, networking in the right places and just uh, good fortune and uh, being in the right place at the right time. So. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, now Jelly Belly is a longtime family owned. Business. It was, I guess, founded in 1869 by two German brothers and was the Hermann, is it Golitz? Golitz. Yes. Candy uh, Company and is now in the sixth generation. Just talk a little bit about the evolution of that company and right. what it's like being kind of a professional manager of such a uh, sort of long term family owned business. Well, uh, the business um, uh, was started by two brothers who immigrated from Austria uh, back in the late 1860s and um, they learned to uh, to make candy, and back in those days, they referred to them as buttercreams, a type of mellow cream candy that uh, they learned to make. And uh, during uh, hard times, uh, uh, both uh, both brothers uh, stopped and started the business a couple of times. Back in in uh, uh, 1898, again, they they uh, reconvened and um, started uh, the business up again. Subsequently, they they sort of went their separate ways, and the next generation uh, took over. But the uh, the the family um, uh, moved many times over the years. Uh, both brothers uh, starting uh, up new enterprises across the country. One moved out west, um, uh, and and uh, uh, that's where Jelly Belly began or began its roots um, back in Portland in the um, in the in the fifties. 
and then moved to uh, Oakland later um, uh, in the 1960s, I believe. And uh, that was where it stayed until and through the uh, development of Jelly Belly. And Jelly Belly came on the scene um, in, uh, it was born in 1976. So it just, uh, it's uh, 20, what is that, uh, excuse me, 30 uh, two years old mm-hmm. now, and um, um, the evolution of Jelly Belly began or was born then, but it, it really was heightened by the uh, uh, the fact that the president mm-hmm. of the United States, then governor of California, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, was a huge fan of the product, and that's really where the story begins. Let's talk a little bit about that piece of the story, because it is really significant in the history and life of the company, mm. but Jelly Belly is one of those just great brands where you know the name and you know the logo. Uh, how did the uh, President Reagan's uh, sort of interest and love of Jelly Belly, Jelly Beans, uh, sort of help drive that? And then how do you build off of that and maintain that even when that's sort of no longer as much a piece of the brand? Right. Um, well, it was a very interesting time. Back, uh, uh, Jelly Belly was just four years old when it was, um, when it became um, um, public information that the, those jelly beans sitting on the president's desk were jelly belly jelly beans. And aren't you glad that became public information? <laughs> I highly recommend if that's the way you want to launch your brand. <laughs> it was, uh, it was uh, we had developed a very special relationship with Governor Reagan at the time and we're supplying him with those and when he became elected as president he decided that he wanted to make jelly belly his inaugural gift. And that um, uh, was all uh, done um, uh, uh, behind uh, closed doors because we were told at the time that this you can't benefit from the sale or the association for the president mm-hmm. and your product. Well, the news media, being what it, as such, uh, was uh, had kind of found out through uh, uh, through various means that Jelly Belly was in fact the product, and so they camped outside our Oakland headquarters mm-hmm. um, back in uh, the late eight, uh, 1980s and. Uh, uh, Herm Rowland, my boss, the owner of Jelly Belly, was petrified to see film crews standing outside the door and, and eventually had to call the White House and talk to his contacts there and get permission to, to tell the press uh-huh. that, in fact, he was the one making the product. And so that began uh, a, a, a crazy time. Oh, yeah. within, um, within two months, we were 72 weeks behind in uh, filling orders. We went from four weeks to 72 weeks behind. And so we were we had a year and a half worth of orders to produce and uh, not the capacity to do it any sooner. So how did you deal with that capacity issue? Because clearly <clears throat> in that kind of a product, just having the availability where right. people want it is really important to right. sort of continue to grow that. So what did you do at that time to address that issue in a short well, that's That was a good piece of the family history because the two families, one was based in Chicago, um, Golitz Confection, and Herm, and that was his cousin Bill Kelly, who was running that operation. Well, we needed capacity, so he called his cousin and said, "We need some help. We, I need to teach you. We need to make jelly bellies together." And um, and that's where the two the two sides of the family were reunited. And uh, capacity was always the issue, catching up. I mean, we were largely just order takers there. There was such a high demand for the product that uh, uh, it was everything. And so. Ultimately, we outgrew the Oakland facility very quickly. The Chicago operation did help address some of the capacity, but we were still far behind. And um, we moved or built a facility in um, Fairfield, California, that opened a 100,000 square foot facility that opened in, in 86. And that's where our company headquarters is today. So how do you continue building the brand when the president's 
sort of stamp on it is no longer kind of what's influencing that brand. Yeah. And, and what are you doing today to build the brand? Well, the, ba- the brand uh, continues to grow and flourish. And it, as you mentioned, it's become an iconic brand, world uh, global brand that's highly recognized everywhere. And uh, it has to be about the product. There's something very unique. We differentiate ourselves from any other product out there. It's the true-to-life flavor. It's the essence of what Jelly Belly is all about. And it just brings a a smile to everyone. says, wow, how do they do that? How do they get that flavor? It's exactly the way it should be. I love the cinnamon ones personally. They're quite good. (laughs) I'm a a toasted marshmallow guy or a juicy juicy pear guy. But... uh, and, and we use and we use real ingredients wherever we're possible to do that, and we do it. And it's a it's a it's a manufacturing process mm-hmm. and how we capture that that you know true to life flavor, and and that's what has sustained us and helped grow the brand. Is it's all about the product. We call it, it's all about the bean, and uh, whatever we do, um, you know, it's a promise we make to the fans of Jelly Belly to make to not take any shortcuts to continue to make the product that meets their expectations, and it's a lot of fun. So part of that is innovation, and you all are known as an innovative company. Do you have any particular processes or systems in place to help you maintain mm-hmm. that innovative approach? Talk some about that. In, well, innovation is the is the life's blood of, of the candy industry, and in our company in particular, and we're considered to be one of the leaders um, in the industry in that regard, um, and we pride ourselves in that. Um, the uh, uh, it's a collaborative effort at Jelly Belly. Everybody, it's kind of it's kind of, of, of fun because they said, "Well, wh- who comes up with these crazy ideas?" Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's not who. It's it's just it's a collection of people, and we all we all um, are own a piece of that mm-hmm. process. So uh, very collaboratively, we have more great ideas than we have resources to chase them down to see if they can come to fruition or go to market. It's a good problem to have. Great problem <laughs> to have. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, from everyone from our suppliers, everyone, you know, our brokers, our distributors, certainly all of our employees, our sales folks in particular, and our customers all play a big role in what we ultimately work on and develop for the market. Do you have any particular criteria that you have in place that helps you decide which of those ideas you go after? Or? It has to be a wow thing. It, ha- it, ha- it has to be over the top. Okay. It has to just instantly resonate and, and be something that we know will be successful. And it's mostly business instincts mm-hmm. over the years of, for a business that's, uh, that has um, you know, survived through a lot of lean times prior to Jelly Belly. I don't think there were any more than 23, 24 employees, and today we have 675 mm-hmm. And so the, as we've grown, we've, we've hopefully we've grown in a healthy way, um, uh, always looking for the next market opportunities. Um, a great example of, of, of uh, innovative products is uh, Sport Meats, mm-hmm. which we introduced mm-hmm. about three years ago. And uh, it came to us from uh, our cycling team that we sponsored mm-hmm. because they were eating Jelly Bellies. And the reason they eat Jelly Bellies is because they need sugar. They need carbohydrate, mm-hmm. and they need it in its simplest form. It's, that's what works. And they talked to us about making larger beans so they could, you know, use them on their rides and their training and whatnot. And that that was really the evolution or the brainchild behind sport beans. Well, when I was reading about the sport beans, I noticed that you you uh, had a nutrition expert that actually gave you some advice on that. It's not something I necessarily would have equated with working with a candy company. Yeah, so I thought that was right. sort of an interesting well, twist to but, uh, innovation. And 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 credit to our company because we recognize that this is a, this is a sport fitness product and mm-hmm. it was not a candy product mm-hmm. and we wanted we we were concerned about credibility what's a candy company like jelly belly doing making a, a nutritional product and so we reached out and uh uc davis is just down the road mm-hmm. from us 20 30 minutes away so uh liz applegate who is their director of 
of uh, uh, sports um, nutrition and runs that department is somebody that we contacted and, and uh, uh, hired to help us with the development of that. Uh, later, she um, uh, uh, led us to working with UC Davis Sports Performance Laboratory, mm -hmm. and we clinically tested the product. And of the of the uh, competitive set that's out there and the carbohydrate fueling product mm -hmm. lines, we discovered that uh, we were one of only two companies that had actually had tested the product, clinically tested it, and it does work mm -hmm. as planned. And so we have a white paper. Uh, American College of Sports Medicine is, is going to be uh, uh, talking at that at their summit this June. And um, uh, we have done what we hope to do, and that's establish credibility for a product that does work, and there is science behind it to prove it. And that product is actually sold, I understand, sort of in different parts of the stores or in different kinds of stores than your regular jelly beans right, are. Right. So how did you, in terms of your distribution channels and the way you market the product, what did you have to do differently, or how did that sort of stretch you as a company yeah. to be able to do that? Beyond just developing a new product, which you're very used to doing, yeah. it's very different marketing channels, distribution channels, and so how has that played out, and what uh, have you learned from that? <laughs> well, we, we, we learned all those things, that it is a different product, it's different. It's in a different category, you're, de you're mm -hmm. dealing with uh, different uh, distribution channels totally than what we're used to selling candy at. So. Um, we had to, um, you know, retool sort of, uh, go to market differently. Um, we we uh, uh, developed associations with distributors that mm -hmm. were in the sports uh, nutrition category. Um, we sold it through our, you know, our core distributors where it made sense, and um, um, and then largely, um, what we did was we we made it, uh, we made it a, a strategic decision to only put the product in the nutritional aisle and not mm. in the candy department. Okay. We're marketing it to an entirely different consumer for a so different purpose. So there was clear differentiation we, of the brands. Yes, we did the, not yeah. want to confuse the two. So the endorser brand is Jelly Belly, no doubt, but Sports Beans mm -hmm. is the brand. Mm -hmm. You've done, also in recent years, other partnerships. You ha I've read about a perfume collection that connects mm -hmm. to your mm -hmm. Jelly Beans, and mm -hmm. Cadbury Schweppes has a soda pop right. collection, and you've done some movie uh, linkage, uh, Harry Potter is probably the most famous of all sure. of those. What led you to those kinds of partnerships, and how do you choose which of those to take advantage of? Again, you've got such a great brand name. I'm sure there's lots of yeah. people that would like to partner with your brand name. So talk about some of those, maybe pick one or <laughs> two that are most interesting, and then how well, do you make those choices? I think it's the power of Jelly Belly that has attracted many many licenses to us, and for all those reasons. Um, uh, licensing um, out opportunities. We hired an agency called Lee Licensing Company, and we are um, in our third year of doing um, uh, a lot of different product lines, both consumables and non-consumables, in about 14 different categories marketed all over the world. And so everything from fashion wear and, and domestics and, and, and to um, you know, bunt cakes on the freezer side or freezer pops or gel anything with Jelly Belly flavors mm -hmm. are very, very popular, drink mixes, things of that nature. And so that program is an ex a brand extension primarily, and it just helps, helps us take the equity we have in our mm -hmm. brand and do those extensions, and we're doing it globally. We're, in fact, we're finding out that uh, that the popularity of Jelly Belly in the Asian markets, Japan in particular, is just it's just way over the top. The consumer reaction to some of the things that are being produced for the market, and we're just we're just getting started with that. Even though it's three years, it mm -hmm. takes a lot of uh, development work up front. 
But um, uh, so that's important. As far as the other brands, Cadbury Schweppes, you mentioned anything that we can do co-branded, where we mm-hmm. can take advantage of the strength and the equity of other brands and use our endorser brand in connection with the two, has been a very powerful uh, way to uh, the consumers have really adapted to that style. Um, one thing I could just I could tell you because we're launching in um, uh, next month is a partnership with Coldstone Creamery, mm. and we're making you know, everybody that knows Coldstone. Yes. Well, they they reached out to us, and and um, we have a, we're launching five of their uh, base flavors that we've done, and we've knocked off, and it, it's it's remarkable what we've done. And uh, so again, you have that power right. of the dual co brands that uh, that we can leverage. So the Harry Potter series was has been enormously mm-hmm. successful, and you all replicated, or I'm not sure replicated is the right <laughs> word, their Bertie Botts candy yeah. that they yeah. talk about in the show. So did you all, I mean, were you approached to we, do that? Yeah, and we how did that play out for you? Because that's such a huge yeah. name, and that series has been so successful. We, uh, we were hired as a contract manufacturer. I think Hasbro had the license mm-hmm. from Warner Brothers, and, and Cap Candy in particular, we had a contract manufacturing arrangement with to do the developmental mm-hmm. work on the, on the product. And uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. First mm-hmm. of all, to challenge ourselves as a company sure. to knock off those flavors, and there were some really weird flavors. I mean, there were you know were things like uh, sardine and and um, um, uh, black pepper, which weren't any problems. But then there were some very imaginative, creative uh, right. flavors that they had us do, like like vomit and earwax and <laughs> booger and things that they should, that were actually mentioned as as original yeah, Bird in Bird the flavors book, in, yeah. the, in the book. And uh, so you have to use your imagination. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you that we use. Now we naturally. actually had some of them. And <laughs> that was interesting, I will say. <laughs> I think more than any, it's it's fun, and just what oh, you're doing yeah. right now is, is just that people laugh and it brings a smile uh-huh. to their face, and that's what we're all about. Oh, sure. You talked a little bit about China, and you also are beginning to do some manufacturing yeah. overseas. So beyond, talk a bit about the decision to take your manufacturing mm-hmm. overseas. And how that's playing out, why you made made that choice, and then we'll also then talk some about just the markets overseas. Sure, we'll start with kind sure. of the manufacturing decision. Uh, I, I think that you're, it, we've been uh, um, uh, toying with the idea of uh, doing uh, offshore manufacturing, setting offshore, because of the um, the restrictions that we have. Shipping finished goods from here overseas is 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 not going to be a successful business model with the duties and tariffs, uh, certainly. Um, we've been very successful with growing our brand on an international basis. We're in 38 countries right now, and uh, there are many emerging markets where our product fits, but the, the, uh, um, the price is prohibitive mm-hmm. in, in some of those markets, so we can't be price competitive, and so uh, the decision is to, to manufacture, set up manufacturing. If you're going to be a global brand and mm-hmm. a player, you need to be in the market. So the question is, where do we go? And we chose Thailand for a number of reasons. Uh, we're in a, in, a, in, a, in a duty-free zone in Rayong, which is uh, about 70 kilometers from Bangkok. And um, uh, the building is 95% complete. In fact, over the next three months, we'll, we're installing equipment right now, manufacturing equipment right now, and we'll be bringing that plant online. So it's a very busy time mm-hmm. for us, right, and a very exciting time for us right now. Um, you know, the reason to do that, uh, Thailand, uh, one thing, you can own the dirt, you can own the mm-hmm. building. Um, it's the fourth largest uh, sugar-producing country in the world, and we can have access to GMO-free uh, corn syrup. Over there, it's tapioca syrup, so we can make GMO-free products, which is very much in demand in many of the Western European markets. Uh, customers like Marks and Spencer, et cetera, 
um, clearly need those type of standards. And so we have the capability of doing that. We don't have that capability here in the U.S. So those are some of the driving, the driving forces. It's centrally located. There's tremendous incentives that the Thai government has offered. But there are employees. This is not, we're not contracting with somebody right. to do this on our behalf. It's your like you do plant. Which these, this is a Jelly Belly uh -huh. property, our building, and our employees, employees mm -hmm. trained to our standards. And nothing will leave that facility unless it meets those standards. So from sort of beginning to think about <clears throat> doing the manufacturing overseas to actually opening the plant, what, what's that <laughs> window of time that it's taken to get to that oh, point? Probably longer because you're doing it yourself as opposed years. to contracting it. Yeah, five so it's years. A long, five years. Long it's, been a, it's been a long process. And uh, we've learned a lot about um, uh, Thai government, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, board of investment opportunities, uh, all the way from applying for that. Luckily for us, we found a good friend, Mariani Fruit Company, which is located in Vacaville, the neighbor of ours, uh, close to Fairfield, had uh, had ventured out years ago and had set up shop there, and so that's what started the discussion. So again, it's had relationships. Had some doors that were open there right. already, and they yeah, and they cool. were very good. Mark Mariani said, let, "Let me let me let me tell you about what we learned and share with you what not to do." Yeah. And that really helped it guide makes a huge us, difference. and it helped make it helped make our decision that that was the right place mm -hmm. to go. So you mentioned that uh, you've been extremely popular in China. What do you think drives that? Po I mean, obviously it's a wonderful product and people yeah. love it, but uh, coming into a market like that that probably wasn't really familiar uh, with you know, there's, beans as much. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, the reason that we're so confident in our ability to uh, enter new markets mm -hmm. with a product that doesn't exist. I mean, in years ago it was, uh, I'll use Germany as an example, mm -hmm. it, it, they didn't know what a jelly bean was. They, they, this part of the Western world mm -hmm. had not reached them. There was no confectionery product that was even closely mm -hmm. similar to it. In Canada, certainly, and in the U and in uh, the UK, certainly, but not Germany. And so, but it's that unique flavor profile and that taste and and just that mouthfeel that that really resonated even with people that didn't know the 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 brand or the candy. And so it was a challenge to us. And we've grown that business over the years, and we'll be able to sustain that business and grow it further with our with our plant in Thailand. Have you developed flavors? For Asia or China, different than here, or do you, what do they like? We're looking, you don't? For, we're looking forward to it. <laughs> you haven't done yeah, it. Yeah, no, okay. we're looking forward to it. I mean, years ago when we were in Australia, you know, they bet, they said, "Oh, you got to do a Vegemite bean," and we did, and it tasted just like it, but nobody bought it. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't such so, a good idea. <laughs> that's our market research. We don't we don't really get too much involved, but we know that there are certain flavor uh, profiles uh -huh. that work in certain markets, whether it's tropical flavors or whatever fruit flavors that really do well. And there's some flavors that don't do well. Some you know, in some Asian countries, uh, root beer and licorice just—they just—you know—they don't appreciate that mm -hmm. at all. So we're going to, you know, analyze it on a market by market basis, and then we'll develop flavors specifically for that market. But there's a good—we make 50 flavors, so there's a good a core of group there. of yeah. choices that we think will work in any market. What's the most popular flavor, or the top oh, two or three? Take a jet. Take a guess. I read some stuff. Let's see. <laughs> Seems like surprising. cherry was close to the top cherry, somewhere. Yeah, cherry regained the number one position last year, but prior yeah, to that, I did pretty good. You did excellent. <laughs> uh, prior I probably cheated to that, a little bit reading some background yeah. information. Uh, prior to that, uh, buttered popcorn, believe really? it or not, was the number one flavor for three years in a row. Now that's an interesting. That we were the first ones to ever attempt to do right. something like that. So you can imagine buttered popcorn. Do you have any sense of what drove that flavor uh, being so successful? You know, they, uh, the people that love it absolutely love it and there's a good part of people who do not like, like it. it 
but it's kind of a love or love it or hate mm-hmm. it kind of thing. But there's a lot of people who really love it, and they're they're addicted to it. So so they just buy a go, lot of go <laughs> go figure. Well, you know the market's out there. Take full advantage of it. That's sure. Well, we've talked a lot about the company. Mm-hmm. I would like to talk just for a few minutes before we close our discussion about kind of your leadership style and, mm-hmm. and how you go about doing what you do. It sounds like you love what you do and have a great passion for it. Uh, but you know, the people that will be are listening to this will be. Uh, business school students, alumni of our MBA programs out in the business world, many of whom aspire to be in the kind of position that you're Mm -hmm. in. So, you know, share with us a little bit about kind of your philosophy of leadership, how you approach your job uh, that might be interesting for someone else that's uh, interested in those kinds of roles. I I don't really give that a lot of thought or what style. I'm told, you know, different things. I I do... um, I do subscribe to a couple of principles that I learned when I was with Rayleigh's, and and Rayleigh's had taught me well. That was a family-owned mm-hmm. and operating mm-hmm. business. It's all. It's really all about your own personal relationships you have with each other. I think that uh, um, I um, I enjoy um, um, uh, interacting with with people and helping them achieve beyond their. Uh, beyond their co- accomplishment mm-hmm. goals, I, I that gives me the greatest sense of pleasure. I, I very, I, I'm not the expert, and I've always made a practice of hiring a lot of smart people that I've surrounded myself mm-hmm. with, much smarter than I am. Um, but it's it's all about the team, it's all about the business, it's all about um, what we can accomplish together. And I think that the one thing that I do bring and I insist upon is working together is not an option. That's what, what that's what we do, and we all win together. Mm-hmm. And um, we all help each other accomplish those things. So I think just that's more of my style. I um, I, I, I see um, uh, your communication is such a critical element of, of and the foundation of leadership. And I think the more the more that you can be specific about the objectives that you set out. I don't mess a lot with people's methods uh, in in uh, in our organization. We're a flat organization. I have uh, 17 direct reports, as an example, and that m- many people would think that's way too many to manage to. But it, it it demonstrates the strength that we have. They all know what's what's expected, and they all work very very hard to deliver to those expectations and, and go beyond. In many cases, they just need a little bit of direction from me. I, I largely stay out of their way, and I root very very hard for them. But one thing I do do is I make sure that it's a collaborative effort and we work across all disciplines in the company to achieve those goals. I'm actually teaching a class this uh, term and in our full-time MBA program, and it's on teams. And one of the things we're spending a little bit of time talking about is top management mm-hmm. teams. You have, If you have 17 direct reports, you actually have a very large group, and I don't know if there's a set of those that you <laughs> maybe consider more of the top management team or not. But how do you go about selecting people into those roles that report to you? Uh, what do you look for in those people uh, that you find to be successful and to make it that collaborative approach right. that is important to you? I, well, I, 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 um, I look for certain unique qualities that, um, uh, assuming the skill sets are, are equal, mm-hmm. I'm always looking for something that will fit into our organization. Mm-hmm. And I can I can tell just um, um, how um, you know in, in interviewing processes to tell how sincere and how um, you know if they if they have an, an, a too big of an ego if they have their own personal agenda it just won't work. They have to know that the owner of the company, if he sees uh, something on the floor or a mess, he stops and, and cleans mm-hmm. it up. And if something's broken, he stops and fixes it. And so there's nothing beneath him. That he won't do, or or, or and and that that applies to the rest of our group. 
So our culture is, is very, very unique in many, many ways. And um, it's my job is to maintain that culture because it's what's made us successful. So I look for people that will fit in. And um, you just get a sense for the type of personality, the type of work ethic, um, what drives certain individuals, um, and um, whether they're going to be a good addition to the team and work well with others. Our mission in the business school at Pepperdine is to develop value-centered leaders. And so we spend a lot of time kind of helping people think through their values and how those influence what they do in an organization and the kind of leader that they're going to be. You know, if you had to kind of pick a couple of values that are most important to you in the roles you play in the organization and as a leader, what might those be? Well, I think honesty and um, um, uh, just being uh, true to yourself Mm -hmm and um, making sure or ensuring that everything that you do is for the right reason mm-hmm. and not for just your personal gain. Well, I think that's a wonderful way to conclude our discussion today uh, and really appreciate you being with us. And I know that our listeners will enjoy so much hearing your insights and learning a bit more about you and, and the way you lead at Jelly Belly. <laughs> thank so you. thank you so much for being it's with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, Linda, that was certainly a lively interview. Well, as Robert Simpson told us, it's very difficult to talk about jelly beans without having a lot of fun in the process. Yeah, and a smile on your face. Well, that's terrific. Tell us a little bit about uh, the next speaker, and I believe this is the last one in the series. It is. We close out the series this year with Steve Lopez, who is a columnist with the LA Times, so a bit different profile than many of our speakers, but we know it will be a very interesting and I think another lively conversation as he looks at what's going on with the media and uh, as it relates to business. No doubt. Well, let me invite our listeners to find out more about the uh, Dean's Executive Leadership Series podcasts by visiting our website at bschool.pepperdine.edu. Until next time, this is Rick Ibsen. Thank you for listening. Why is Pepperdine University's Grazio Dio School of Business and Management considered the smart way for working professionals to earn an MBA? Well, first and foremost, Forbes magazine ranks Pepperdine's fully employed MBA program among the top 20 business schools for return on investment. So financially, it's very smart. And Pepperdine's program is built around real-world curriculum, not just theory, so students can apply what they learn in class at the workplace the next day. So now, does earning an MBA from one of the most highly regarded business schools in the world sound like a smart move to you? Then call 1-800-933-3333 for more information. That's 1-800-933-3333. Pepperdine University's prestigious Grazio Dio School of Business and Management. The smart business decision. And Pepperdine also offers a top-ranked executive MBA program.